Too many days in the darkness Without a glimpse of the light Running tired and broken and scared But I swear I'll never give up the fight Rotations is all about allowing interesting people the opportunity to share their opinions and ideas. Some listeners may find the opinions and content expressed disturbing and objectionable. Hello everyone, it's uh, Todd Fredericks again on the beautiful uh, ninth day of June already. Ninth day of June already in, uh, and I am I am sitting in Southeast Ohio, but Dr. John Bashara, who's decided to uh, sit with us or actually speak with all of us on the third segment of this episode of Rotations about pulmonology and SARS-CoV-2, COVID-19, is in Charleston, West Virginia, and he is on the phone right now. John, thank you for coming Thank you for having me. You bet. Hey, John, this is going to be a little out of sequence, but we're going to finish this segment. If the first segment was about how to be a pulmonologist or or the best parts and the worst parts of being a pulmonologist, and the second one was about COVID-19, this is kind of really about where we're headed in COVID-19. But I I need to clean up one thing, and that is... Something that really fits into COVID-19 as a disease, but we didn't touch it yesterday because we had to break and, and come to today. But what is all the talk today about coagulopathy and COVID-19? Can you talk about that? Because I first heard of that about two, three weeks ago, and I was like, wait a minute, this is like, you know, uh, pulmonary pulmonary capillary leaks and and all sorts of weird crap showing up in the lungs. And what, what's this doing with as a coagulopathy? What do, they, what do people mean by that? Yeah, so COVID-19 has been associated with inflammation and a prothrombic state, prothrombotic state, excuse me, meaning that COVID-19 has been shown to be more likely to cause clots by increasing fibrin, fibrin degradation products, fibrinogen, and the famous... uh, or the not-so-famous D-dimer. What we do know is that the true incidence of the clots or thrombosis is not really known, but there has been increased incidence of these thromboembolic diseases or events with COVID-19 in patients in the ICU. Wow. So, yes. So then, are you, are you seeing... COVID-19 patients being heparinized or what, what? So the current recommendation according to the NIH is they pretty much are, are telling the physician is based on standard evidence-based medicine, based on standard hospital protocols. If you have to initiate the venous thromboembolic uh, thromboembolism, so be it. You should do so as in any other patients that are admitted to the ICU, but to be aware that those patients with COVID-19, there are increased associations and incidents. 
So are we talking about various methodologies to include heparin and low molecular weight heparin or, or, or just one type of thing? You know, the, the, the more... They yeah. pretty much recommend uh, to go with whatever the hospital uh, standard protocol is. So it might, be a, it might be a drip or it might be a shot. Correct. Interesting. And, and that's managed based upon uh, looking at uh, INRs, PT, PTTs, all of it, what, 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 um, uh, C-reactive really, proteins. What, 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 what is that that guides people? In, it, what is the lab that they're – I know this is really wonkish, but what is the lab that we're looking at to determine this? D-dimers, so, I mean – D-dimers are really for the uh, pulmonary embolism, but they base it on PT, platelet count, fibrinogen, fibrogen uh, degradation products. They're really also basing it on uh, sedentary, so those patients who are bed-bound mm. are more likely to develop clots. Those patients that have ARDS, they're going to be intubated, so they're really increased risk of developing DVTs. So they do recommend against routine uh, screening, but they do say, look, you should still understand that this can occur. Yeah, and I'm glad we, we talked about that because for the casual listener, I think people need to, uh, need to understand that this can be a very complicated disease. And Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, we, you know, there are some people who are going to get SARS-CoV-2 infections and they're going to have a cough and they're going to have a fever and they might develop a, a, pneumo- a pneumonia-type picture and then they're going to recover. And there are others who have devastating multi-organ failure uh, and just crazy stuff uh, going on that can really challenge even the best team of interdisciplinary physicians trying to manage them. Correct. And those patients on ECMO are getting... Uh, continuous re- uh, renal replacement therapy or hemodialysis, those patients have increased risk because of thrombosis in their catheters, the extracorporeal filters. So they're really stressing the hospitals, look, please treat antithrombotic therapy per your institutional protocol. They don't want to say, look, start them on this or start them on that. Whatever the hospital recommends, you follow that protocol. I mean, we also have to consider, have special consideration for those women that are pregnant or mm. those that are nursing. They have to, management of anticoagulation during labor and delivery requires the specialized care. And women who are nursing, we have to know, unfractionated heparin or low molecular weight heparin and warfarin do not accumulate in breast milk. So it does not have any, it does not transfer to the newborn. But those women, the OBGYNs, the ICU, the pulmonologists need to be aware that, yes, this can occur. Man, John, I, I, again, I, I sit back and I look at this and I, I see, and I'm probably a little biased on this because I read, a, I spend a lot of time on social media, just mostly because it's just a way of judging where people are. On things, and I see people who are just totally conspiratorial. That somehow they think that the government is using uh, COVID nineteen as a way to, you know, put people down or force them into behaviors that they don't want to be in. And I don't know if you saw it today, but on Monday, UC Berkeley uh, released a big um, retrospective study that they 
have you seen this, John, where they've talked about um, mitigation efforts and how that may have played out in terms of preventing millions and millions of infections up front? Um, it looks on the surface, it was published, I think it's published in Nature. I've got the, and it very clearly says, this is an accelerated copy. You know, after this whole deal with Lancet and Annals of Internal Medicine this last week where they had to pull these papers uh, because they got everybody thinking that masks don't help. Um, even though I think the journals did their due diligence and said, look, this is preliminary data. As soon as they realized they couldn't get the data sets off the people providing it, they pulled the papers. But um, I think Nature did a pretty good job of saying, this is an accelerated copy, beware. But what we're seeing here looks pretty rigorous and it's a very compelling paper. If you don't have it, I'll shoot it to you. I posted it on Facebook this morning for people who are just interested in it. But they're talking about just, you know, just social distancing alone, how much of an effect that's had, they estimate, using economic models, econometric models, on preventing more people from getting infected. And when we're talking about that patient who has multi-organ failure, that's what we're really talking about. So people who rebel against wearing reverse isolation masks in a grocery store, the end result of that could be one of these patients that you and I are talking about that's fighting for their life and failing rapidly. Absolutely. Yeah, it, it's it's pretty crazy. So John, mm -hmm. so John, that's helpful. So let's go into this last set of set of questions I have. So we see people on social media; they're skeptical that every death being labeled COVID nineteen is being used to inflate the COVID nineteen numbers. What what actually has to happen to label a death as a COVID nineteen related death? So what is interesting? You know, I just received an email just this morning, and. From um, CHESS, which is American College of Chess Physicians, uh, possible coronavirus cases and deaths being reported by fewer than half of the states. So we're talking about even under reports. Really? So there yeah. isn't a big push to try to report something as a COVID, at least in some cases, there's not a big push to, to say this is a COVID-19 death. They're actually underreporting the deaths that they're probably due to COVID-19? Correct. Wow. John, why doesn't that, I mean, how do you fight that? How do, I mean, how do we get that information out to people? Because I literally see people, and of course, we're all waiting for what happens after all these uh, protests and marches and stuff in the major metropolitan areas as people scatter back to their communities. It could be a couple of weeks or months before we start seeing the, the effects of that in terms of spikes in nursing homes or other vulnerable populations. How do we get that out and say, look, this is the counter narrative to what you're seeing, which is we probably are underreporting these deaths. I think the biggest thing is the physicians or the frontline workers, they need to have a voice. They need to say, look, we need to do a better job and voice this issue. The only way anything happens is you must put an effort to do something. And that's pretty much the biggest thing that I've seen is, like, there's that old saying, the squeaky wheel gets the oil. Yep. And if the frontline responders or, you know, the physicians, the nurses, the mid-levels, if they're taking care of a patient that has COVID-19 and the patient dies, you know, we have to say, was this COVID-19 related or was there any, some, was there something else that was, con that was contributing it? Um, a family friend, you know, 
just not to go by uh, on a tangent, but family friend whose father was a priest was uh, uh, praying to a, for a family whose uh, father passed away from what they suspected was a myocardial infarction, a heart attack. And interestingly, the wife of the late her, her late husband also died a week later, and they found out she had COVID nineteen. So they're assuming that the husband probably died of COVID-19 as well. But the problem was they labeled him as, you know, mortality secondary to a myocardial infarction, not COVID-19 causing cardiac dysfunction. Wow. So, you know, again, hindsight is 2020. We, uh, the most important thing is you have to test for it. The father that, you know, the the priest that I was talking about, he actually, when he went home a couple of days later, he actually uh, fell down and hurt himself. They called EMS. EMS checked him out and said, oh, you know, you just had a bad sprain. They never checked the temperature on him. Uh-oh. He spiked it. He had a fever. And he... Uh, when he went to uh, get checked out because he realized he was like, why am I feeling so warm? Why am I feeling not myself? He was positive for COVID-19 and he ended up giving it to his wife and uh, his two sons, which are, you know, we both uh, uh, grew up together. So, you know, not doing our due diligence is hurting us. Yeah, I would say this to medical students. They get tired of me preaching this, but vital signs are called that because they're vital. And, right. um, and you know, there's some interesting research going on about using personal monitors and personal, like, fitness trackers to look at maybe getting earlier signs of possible infection. But right now, what we have are vital signs to start with and as a screening tool. And that I see medical students that come out of four years of medical school and still can't do a proper set of vital signs themselves. And that's a, that's a failure on the part of, of us as educators in terms of emphasizing that, but it, man, that's, that's, that's sobering, very sobering. You would take it home to your family, not even knowing because you weren't informed by people who should know better. Absolutely. Mm. Wow. So let's go on, let's go on to another one here, which I think you'll like. The president's taken a lot of criticism for using hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin. Can you explain to people why we like or we think those drugs might be helpful in certain phases of SARS-CoV-2, COVID-19? Sure. So chloroquine, hydroxychloroquine, those are anti-immune. They're pretty much immune suppressants, one, and they're also anti-malarial drugs. Sometimes they're also used for uh, modifying agents for rheumatoid uh, diseases. So they both increase the pH in the cell membrane. One, two, they also inhibit fusion of uh, SARS coronavirus 2 and the host cell membrane. So we're talking about a inhibition of fusion from the coronavirus to normal epithelial cells. So they're talking about a block or a inhibition from coronavirus attaching to respiratory cells. Fine. Chloroquine also inhibits glycosylation, meaning 
in the cell, they have you know, ACE receptors or angiotensin-converting enzyme 2 receptors. And what they do, they also interfere with binding. So the two biggest mechanisms of action of these drugs are they inhibit binding or they inhibit attachment from the virus to our respiratory or our epithelial cells. So this was seen in vitro, meaning you have a test tube, mm-hmm. a study, and they saw that there was this mechanism of action. Mm-hmm. However, it was not translated in vivo, so in real-life human studies or animal studies. You know, a lot of people always get confused. In vitro, in vivo, in vivo, in vitro, so... Yeah. In vivo means literally in life. So, so when we talk about in vivo, we're talking about what does it look like when I actually give you this drug versus in a laboratory? And this is, by the way, and John, correct me if I'm wrong, because I'm just the family practitioner. I, I just do crayons and pictures, right? So I, I want to keep it clear to where we can have an explanation for the average person. First of all, these, this particular, these findings stopped a WHO study uh, the Lancet published this stuff, and they've retracted it appropriately, saying yeah. that there was no benefit to hydroxychloroquine. What is going on right now is several large trials trying to figure out where hydroxychloroquine is effective, if it is at all, in vivo. And mm-hmm. what the problem with those published papers was is that it stopped those protocols because people were worried about safety. And I pointed out in another place that we've given hydroxychloroquine to millions of people. I mean, millions. And there are some rare risks with it, but millions of people tolerate hydroxychloroquine for rheumatological, arthritic conditions, anti-malaria, all that stuff. Is that not correct? Correct. So the the hysteria surrounding this, I think, was overwarranted, and I actually think it interfered with good science because it stopped trials that were going on for the sake of patient safety based upon reputable journals that were saying this and we delayed right we delayed that study we delayed those studies now actually not trivially by by many 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 days uh and so now they're they're starting them up again this is crazy to me what about the azithromycin so azithromycin so azithromycin the proposed antiviral effects is it induces the interferon what's that the interferon oh interferon okay by attenuating the viral replication. So basic terms is they reduce the virus from reproducing. And that's one proposed mechanism. Yeah, and and John, Um, and I don't mean to interrupt you, but just so people are clear, we're really relying on the immune system of the human being to catch up. Right? Because we're not, we're not giving anti, there are some trials with antivirals, but azithromycin is clearly an antibiotic. Hydroxychloroquine is doing something on a cell membrane. It's not. It's not a dedicated antiviral per se. But if I'm, if I understand correctly, what we're trying to do is buy the patient's own immune system time to start recognizing the uniqueness of of SARS-CoV-2, and generate antibodies so it can help. It can fight its infection without correct. being overwhelmed by massive viral loads from unchecked virus replication. Correct. Is that is that just, fair? Yeah. Okay. And that's just mechanism. There's also other mechanisms for uh, azithromycin. 
it enhances neutrophil activation. Your immune system. Yeah. So it boosts up the neutrophils from being activated. We we sense a virus. What is the first attack? It's the neutrophils. It's your white blood cells. It goes and tries to neutralize through phagocytes. So it eats up the virus. Yeah. Yeah. So your neutrophils are white cells that are just just like Pac-Man. They're looking for something to eat that isn't you. And and then they get rid of that cellular debris and it gets filtered out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. And we talked about yesterday cytokines being proteins that can induce inflammation. Azithromycin is known to attenuate or reduce these inflammatory proteins, IL-6, interleukin-6, interleukin-8, in both the epithelial cells and these fibroblasts, which are soft tissue growth factors in the smooth muscle cells, which line our airway. So as a pulmonologist, we use azithromycin a lot. Yeah, you do. A lot. And it's not really antibiotic use. It's also anti-inflammatory. Patients with interstitial lung disease, we've used it. Patients with other sort of inflammatory disease, we've also used it. John, you have just humbled me because for years I've been railing against my colleagues. By the way, I'm pretty sure they don't understand why they, the mechanism we just talked. But now I have to basically semi-apologize to them because for years I've been frustrated by doctors who just shove a Z-pack to someone who has the flu mm-hmm. uh, and send them out the door. But describing it that way as using azithromycin, not as an antibiotic for a non-bacterial problem, but as an immune modulator, to help a person fight off respiratory virus infections? Um, let me ask this question, and this will really put me in my place. Do you guys ever use azithromycin in that way with people with severe flu? We, so, through training, we were educated in saying that azithromycin should only be used for atypical infection. Mycoplasma, that kind of thing. Correct. Mycoplasma, chlamydia, chlamydophilus. For severe flu, we try not to give, uh, we try to keep it with Tamiflu or uh, the generic Ostomavir. Yeah, also Tamiflu, sure. So I don't feel bad then. Keep, keep going, no. I'm sorry. We, we try to reduce, we're trying to encourage antibiotic stewardship. Okay. In training, we use azithromycin a lot, especially in asthmatics. And why is However, that? There was one study that showed a, a lot of uh, children with asthmatics, uh, adults in asthmatics, had atypical infection that caused or induced uh, asthma exacerbation. Legionella? And they, what was that? Was it Legionella? What was it? No, no, mycoplasma chlamydia. It, it was still mycoplasma. Okay. Mm-hmm. And that uh, they felt that the azithromycin really, truly helped. However, that one study could not be replicated. That's a problem. So we have studies that show, look, do not use azithromycin in patients with asthma exacerbations. You have steroids, you have systemic steroids to 
that's they're anti-inflammatory. That's the job for that happens that is done that is needed to control anti the inflammation from asthma exacerbation. But so we're are you using but are you using steroids in the management of COVID nineteen patients? It is not recommended. <laughs> it's complicated, it's, doesn't it? Especially in patients with ARDS. What, hap- what happens when you give steroids to patients with ARDS? So there is so much. So when we talk about ARDS, acute respiratory distress syndrome, there's so many studies. A lot of pulmonologists, a lot of bright, smart, intelligent physicians have researched the use of corticosteroids in ARDS. And they showed there was no effect. There was one study, there was uh, some studies by, I believe, a Brazilian uh, pulmonologist or researcher in Midori. So they have a Midori protocol saying, look, we feel that actually steroids in the beginning helps tremendously in ARDS. However, other researchers say, no, 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 no. Do not use corticosteroids in patients with ARDS. You can use steroids in patients with underlying asthma, COPD. You can use steroids with moderate disease, but those patients that progress to end-organ acute respiratory distress syndrome, it is not recommended. Even though many people probably use it as a last-ditch effort prior to ECMO or extracorporeal membranous uh, oxygenation, it is still not recommended. You know, I, I am in deep awe and appreciation of the complexity of individual diseases and how much responsibility we have to make a correct diagnosis and how, how quickly a person's outcome uh, can vary depending on how good of diagnose, how good of a diagnosis we make. Um, this is something I've talked about with people about testing, and I've tried to explain to them that PCR intranasal testing is, is pretty good at helping to clarify treatment, so to differentiate between flu, influenza, and COVID-19. But it's not necessarily a great tool to screen a population. Um, and I don't know what your feelings are on that, but, but this, I guess the point I'm trying to make, and you can comment on that, John, I want to be informed properly, and I want people to hear this to get good information, but these are really complicated cases, and they are not easy, and it takes time for a standard of care to develop that is tested and verifiable and that works for most people well. Correct. So it, it's, you know, it goes back to, uh, let's, let's give a... Uh, like a scenario. Let's say the hospital says, you know, I want all my employees, everyone that works, to get tested with uh, swabs. Yep. That's happening, by the way. And universities, too. Correct. And you go back to, you know, what is the person in charge to do? You know, you're going to spend all this money to have everyone get tested. And it's like, it's a situation is damned if you do and damned if you don't. And my personal belief, and again, this is my personal belief, when you're in a position of leadership 
and you you want to protect your subordinates or you you want to protect your employees some people will say look i would do everything to protect them i would pr- do everything to make sure i don't have the spread of mm-hmm. the disease now you you talk to another person and be like look i also have to be cost effective i have i have to know that i have to protect my employees but i also have to pay them at the end of the day so if i can't pay them because i'm working with them and people can't work because they're positive or I'm pretty much bankrupt because I'm spending, let's say, a million dollars on testing. It leaves them into this predicament. And if, let's say, if I was in a leadership position, I would say, look, I'm very conservative. I would say, let's test. Because if I know COVID-19 has a mean mean incubation period of 5 to 14 days, I don't want to cause nosocomial spread. I don't want to bring it home and spread it to my loved ones or to my family members where now I realize or we're finding out data where we didn't realize that children, infants, and teenagers are also getting severe infections, mm-hmm. which we didn't realize a month ago. We're saying, oh, you know, kids are not really affected. And now we hear, well, actually they are. So, well, so it's a lot. So your advice, John, is we got universities, they're going to be starting up here, summer, summer sessions and fall sessions. What's your mm-hmm. advice to, say, a university that has 20,000 students that are going to be coming in from all over the world and all over the nation and now in close confines? Would you go and do mass PCR testing on that population? And how, and how would you do that? Would you stage them in over time? Would, the, would you quarantine groups? How, how would that work for you? So, and that is a very good and a very difficult question at the same time. Yes, it is. How should you test all those people that, you know, let's say the start date is August 1st. Are we going to test everyone that comes in August 1st? How about those people that come in September 1st? Do we test them as well? And do we go back and test those people that came in on August 1st? Because again, they've been in school for a month. They've gone home, visited their families. So they've probably been also, again, exposed without them knowing. So you have to, you're really talking about almost like a domino effect. Yeah. So if I test one, I have to test that one person again and again and again. Where does it stop? Can universities test all these students, all these faculties, all these employees repeatedly? I don't know. I, 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 I'm inclined to think that normal screening methodology, and I guess this segues into something, and known, um, known hygiene methodology, so reverse isolation, masks for droplet control, hygiene, and social distancing are probably the most cost-effective with targeted testing to people who screen positive for fever, cough, etc., as that happens, and then aggressive contact tracing to find out where it may else have spread from those people. That's the only way I see it, because otherwise you're going to spend millions and millions of dollars per institution doing sequential testing on intervals. Mm -hmm. And then you have to talk about the false positives and false negatives. Truth. 
Truth. Wow. You know, universities also have to talk about, again, we, we talk about social distancing. We have to make sure we have to limit class size. That means we have to get more instructors or we have to get fewer, offer more classes for the instructors to teach at. The question is, can some of these classes go online? Well, you know, can you teach these classes online? Like in medical school, you can't teach class of or third years and fourth years online. They have to do clinical rotation. Uh, that's a good point. And I introduced that concept to my own institution. I said, we need to start teaching PPE use to make it muscle memory intuitive in the first year of medical school. They need to start learning and put them into simulated situations where they have to learn this type of situation require this level of PPE, this type of situation require this level of PPE. Um, because I feel exactly what you're saying. We cannot stop putting nursing and PA and medical students into third and fourth year rotations, but we also have an ethical obligation to protect them because they're inexperienced, but they should know without, without any kind of question about what PPE is required for various situations to mitigate risk. And we really did not realize this, like in the beginning when we were talking about, when we first met Todd, we were talking about what is the proper mask. Should we have people wearing masks the whole time? Should we have them just wearing N95 masks? And when the CDC came out and were like, well, you know, it's not just aerosol and maybe respiratory droplets were like, uh, all right, now we have to make sure we have to have everyone wear proper masks. So, so are you still comfortable with simple masks, both people wearing them in a casual contact? So two people working three or four feet from one another in a, without symptoms, without active coughing, wearing simple masks. Is that protective in your estimation? I feel that, you know, surgical masks do protect one. Uh, there was a study that just came out that showed that N95s were better than surgical masks. Well, yes. Sure. Truly, you know, we, we don't need to have a large study to show that. We know that, that N95s are superior, but, you know, the supply and demand, are we able to get everyone N95 masks every day or every week? You know, it will limit us. So we try to say, all right, can we have those non-essential people wear surgical masks? Well, you know, and I'm thinking, too, in the clinical situation, I just had a discussion with a nurse I've known for basically her whole life uh, since she was a little child and I was an older little child. She's one of my sister's best friends. She's had diabetes her whole life. And I said, you working in a clinic with casual contact with asymptomatic patients, you, I would probably recommend you wear an N95 when you're in clinic. I'd wear a simple mask. But you have diabetes. And so, so we need to be, develop the sophistication to say it's not just the encounter, but it's also you. If you're a person that's predisposed with underlying medical problems, what we would call comorbidities or morbidity, underlying comorbidity, you may need a higher level of protection in even routine clinical circumstances than I would with a relatively healthy immune system uh, in that patient encounter. I, I, that makes sense to me. Correct. You know, if you have multiple or more than one uh, comorbid condition and you're essentially taking care of patients who are sick, you know, you would think to protect yourself more because you're at high risk of getting more severe disease. That does not mean 
people who are not people who are very healthy cannot get severe disease. It's just you try to take care of patients that are or people that are more likely to get more severe disease. So, John, do you like people wearing masks in uh, Kroger and and Lowe's and all those places? You, you, are you a fan of that? So we all have a part to play. I wear my mask to protect you. You should wear your mask to protect me. Yeah, I agree. I, I feel that way too. Keep going. I'm sorry. It, no, it's just that simple. Whenever I go shopping, I see Kroger's, I see people not wearing masks. And it just confounds me. It's like, you know, I'm wearing my mask for you. You know, I could just not wear a mask and spread my germs all over to you. And it's not fair. So please protect yourself, protect your loved ones, protect people that you really don't want to get sick. Yeah, and I've tried to explain this to people, John. I'm going to dime you out, okay? You remind me of, like, Bob Dylan's brother, right? So if if you guys saw Dr. Bashara walking around... You would probably never associate him with it as a pulmonologist that goes into a critic that goes into critical care units with really sick people, and he's doing you the service of making sure that if he's picked up something, he's not bringing it willfully into your shopping experience and trying to expose you to it. But likewise, it's really respectful for my friend John Bashara, who has to go in and deal with critically ill people, many of whom who don't have COVID nineteen but have really serious lung problems not to pick something up from you while you're shopping and take it back into his office and inadvertently give it to them. That's, that's a, that's, that's to me, that's, that's to me. I just, I'm like, I, I, people don't even see it, John. They don't even realize that every day they encounter people who are working with really ill patients or with really vulnerable patients. They just assume that if they're being asked to wear a mask because they can't see something that somehow they're being, you know, accosted in their liberties. And I'm like, no, really, this is a serious deal. This is a really serious deal. It might be a child. It might be a baby with asthma. Correct. You know? Correct. That's why I was so happy when the CDC was like, you know, I started wearing my N95 mask uh, everywhere even since the beginning. And I remember when I was shopping, I was actually in my uh, uh, OCTs, my uh, uh, military uniform, and one uh, physician stopped me in the parking lot. He was like, you know, sir, uh, that mask is just not protecting uh, uh, protecting <laughs> you. The mask is actually protecting me. And, you know, I feel I felt bad for them. I was like, oh, I know that. Um, you know, I had to tell them, I'm a physician, and I'm actually wearing it to protect you because I'm getting exposed, and I really don't want you to get my exposure. How did that go? He, like, once I told him that I was a physician, he just, he stopped, he was like, oh, oh then you know, never mind. <laughs> just and, you know, you, you just, like, get dumbfounded, be like, I'm so happy that the whole recommendations changed. Because I remember the Surgeon General was like, please stop wearing masks. And now we're like, no, please start wearing masks. Well, and we need to put that in context, John. The reason why the Surgeon General is doing that was because in the beginning of this, there was an acute mask shortage. And they were yeah. afraid that the general population was sucking up masks that healthcare providers needed who were working with really critically ill people. But, Correct. The, but Absolutely. in general, the supply chain has caught up enough, at least that I'm now getting from my normal supplier, my small quantity of, of uh, disposable gloves that I use at my home, they're, they're now picking it up and stuff, and now we're in a position where 
you know, it's super hard to publicly message in a way that gives the whole story because very rarely do you get enough time to do that or people just don't pay attention long enough. And so I feel that, um, again, context is everything. If people knew now, if people knew what they knew, if people then knew what they knew now, well, first of all, they'd probably still say, we got a rationing problem. We need to make sure the healthcare providers have the stuff first. But they would have said, yes, everybody will eventually be in mass as soon as we catch this thing up. Right now, we need to protect the healthcare professional supply because they're the most critical workers we got and people were sick. Yeah, I've watched that. It's And this has all occurred within the last three months because I remember three months ago, I started wearing a simple mask in every patient encounter I had on the units because uh, I worked mm-hmm. in, I work in a locked psychiatric facility and that patient population is completely naive to the outside world, right? So I didn't want to bring anything into them. And people were like, why are you wearing a mask for? Well, uh, because, uh, you know, this thing is probably droplet spread, it's respiratory, and I don't want to cough into someone's face not knowing I have it. It, it, And now, of course, all these, the time moved on and people are now, they, now it's, now it's not, it's beyond that. Now we have to wear face shields too. The the Mm -hmm. administration, and they were, I will, I will credit my administration. They listened very carefully, but because it's a state organization, a state institution, they have to go through policy and they have to make sure it's vetted properly and that employees are properly, amazing things like how will the union respond to this? What are the union concerns? And how do we deal with patient uh, people who are claustrophobic? They're all valid, but it, when you start dealing with bureaucratic implementation of policy, it can get very complicated. And it can seem like we're wasting time, but, it, but eventually they get to it and they figure out, yes, everybody should be in mask, everybody should be wearing a face shield, blah, 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 blah. Really weird. So we talked about that. What about hand washing and, and social distancing? What do you think about that, John? And we talked about uh, on the previous episode that back in the 1300s, the 1400s, when they were treating or they were trying to combat the Black Plague, the bubonic plague, they resorted to social distancing and quarantine. And that was effective. However, the problem was people didn't want to be stuck inside their house all the time. However, it was shown to be effective. And what, the Black Plague killed over 30 million mm-hmm. Europeans? Mm-hmm. So we're talking about something that was six, seven centuries ago that was effective as it is now. Why don't we continue doing social distancing? Why don't we continue doing quarantines? I understand we have to open up the economy. We have to try to get back to our day-to-day lives. However... I think social distancing should still be continued. I still think hand hygiene is the basic of all basic personal protective equipment mm-hmm. that one can do. Um, it's like that common say that saying, when your hands are not visibly soiled, use hand sanitizer. But, you know, can I just wash my hands with soap and water the whole time? Why not? I think I'm protecting myself a little bit more effectively. John, I have seen uh, hand sanitizer. I have a real case of heartburn about that because here's, here's how that works. And I've got this figured out, I think. First of all, white coats have been long known to be vectors for transmission of infectious disease. Th- th- that research was done in the 70s and 80s. And people know that ties, white coats, all that stuff can be a vector for disease uh, transmission. What happens is, is people wear these white coats, which I never wear in clinic. I refuse to do. I keep my, my forearms bare. I wear scrub shirts. 
et cetera, because I want to be able to wash my hands. When you're wearing a white coat and you put your hands under a sink, invariably the cuffs get wet. If you're washing your hands properly, it makes people uncomfortable. And so now you have hand sanitizer. And I've seen cases where people walk out of an ICU room and there's a hand sanitizer dispenser or right next to it is a sink and they will default to the hand sanitizer because they, they don't have to get their sleeves wet. But the problem is, is that soap is incredibly effective at wiping out the viral envelopes of SARS-CoV-2, along with every other virus that has any kind of lipids in it. So soap and water are incredibly good at cleaning your hands. Uh, hand sanitizer has to be dealt with very deliberately, and if you don't do it right, you're probably not doing anything. And I don't mm -hmm. disagree with the use of it. I've used it plenty of it in the Middle East when I didn't have a sink. But it is really, in my estimation, a second choice. If I have a sink and soap or I have a hand sanitizer dispenser, I'm always defaulting to sink and soap. Absolutely. I, I, I think it's gotten better, especially after my son was born, especially when he came home from the NICU. I washed in before, I washed in out. Yes, my hands became dry and cracky, cracking, but I'd rather have dry, cracking hands that I can put moisturizer than carrying home infections for my creamy that I really don't want to get sick and bring them back to the hospital. I, I, I agree, and I wish we could just... I wish we could just basically test every medical student. And if they walk by a sink with soap, in preference to the hand sanitizer dispenser, we penalize them. We need to, we need to do something dramatic to get them to start learning to use soap and water. Because the solution to pollution is dilution. Absolutely. And man, there's nothing better than something that wipes out fats, soap, and something that washes it away, water. And I, I, I mean, yeah, I don't, I can beat that horse till I'm dead. I just, I don't know. I, 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 should, I should ask people, would you feel comfortable with your surgeon doing open joint surgery by just smearing some hand sanitizer on their hands? Or would you want them to go to a scrub sink and scrub down? You tell me which one makes more sense to you. As they Correct. look at their hand sanitizer and say, this is good enough. Well, it may be, but that water and soap is better. I'm just telling you. Hmm. So, John, we'll ask a few questions. And I know you got to go because you got to go take care of uh, people who can't breathe right. Um, I, I, lung disease is awful. It, it, it's second only to kidney disease in my mind. You know, when I see people who have chronic lung disease, I think the worst case sick people I see are chronic renal failure. Um, that's just awful. But lung disease is awful. When people can't breathe, it's sad. It's heartbreaking. You know? Uh... I would say this for people who are interested in the field of pulmonology. Generally speaking, you'll never question about why your patients are there because they have real problems. It's it's not just, hey, my back hurts a little bit. I don't know what to do about it. It's people who really are suffering in life. Lung disease is awful. Yeah. And, and John, can you grow new lungs once you kill it with cigarette smoke? No. <laughs> That's another thing. Uh, don't get me started. I won't. <laughs> but <laughs> lungs are not livers. They don't regenerate. Um, so... Yeah. The lungs will heal itself. You know, there was a nice thing that, you know, I learned back in medical school that a smoker who stops smoking has almost equally the same lung 20, 30 years down the line as a non-smoker. Yeah, there's that remodeling thing, right? after. I thought it was five years. I thought after five years, you know, all the cilia are working again and all that stuff. I thought it was five to ten years, but it was, you know, I graduated medical school in 2010. You know, the mind is not, I don't remember as much stuff as I used to. But the point is, is if you quit smoking, you can recover significant amounts of lung function. Correct. 
Good. That's our message today from the family doctor and the pulmonologist. Quit smoking. Seriously, don't. It's not a conspiracy. It's really bad for you. <laughs> um, John, do, do and this is another wonkish question. Does prior coronavirus of any kind confer any partial immunity against SARS-CoV-2? And that's been in the news that, that maybe some of the reasons why people are better prepared to deal with coronavirus, along with the blood type thing, that that people who've had prior coronavirus infections may have a little bit of a boost in their immune system to dealing with SARS-CoV-2. You, you know anything about that? So they were talking about um, this being a case, uh, I believe, was it a, a WHO researcher or an NIH researcher? They talk about, they you know mentioned that those already, there already are concerns regarding the ability to of people to maintain or remain immune to coronavirus. Mm-hmm. They typically lose their immunity to these coronavirus strains that cause a common cold within a year. And what I believe is there was one identified area that the coronavirus was mutating. I believe they called it the coronavirus spike protein. Mm-hmm. And look, if you put a mutational pressure on any RNA virus, which coronavirus, SARS, MERS is, no surprise, the virus mutates, mutates and changes. Mm-hmm. Typically, like influenza, you have your drift, you have your shift. That's why we have to do annually flu vaccines. I believe what may happen is we get the first coronavirus vaccine, and you know, hopefully it lasts, but part of me is thinking that we may need multiple boosters, if not annually, at least two, three, four years down the line, because you never know. Coronavirus does mutate like influenza and mutates and it can change. That's why we don't have the rhinovirus or the common cold vaccine yet, because there's so many types mm-hmm. of rhinovirus, rhinovirus A, B, and C, and it can go up to uh, so many different strains, I believe, 121 or whatever. Yeah. And we may, we had SARS, we have MERS, we have this SARS coronavirus type 2. We may have further other coronavirus that can cause these pandemics in the future. So we have to be vigilant that we shouldn't think, oh, you know, I had the cold once. That doesn't mean uh, you can't get it again. So that's the question, John. Then people who are interested in getting a vaccine to this, does that happen or not? What do you think? I think that there will be a vaccine. I think it will take a long time. You know, the process of developing, licensing a vaccine, we have to be, we have to design it slowly, deliberate it. We have to actually do a peer review process. I mean, if we go too fast, the vaccine may not be effective. In looking through phase one, phase two, phase three trials, talk about post-marketing trials. We have to make sure that the vaccine, if it's done, it's done properly and actually causes uh, long-term immunity. If not, then they have to go back to the drawing board and actually say, look, I think we may have to give this often. So, John, are we talking a year, two years, you think, before we get the first real good trial vaccine? I think that the amount of people involved into this vaccine, I think um, 
financially, I think they're trying to uh, be the first to pump out a vaccine and make sure it's proper. Yep. I think that, I think money is driving this uh, ship. And they're really trying to say, look, we developed the first vaccine. It was effective. And look, look at our rates. Look at, at how incredible we're, sh- we're showing this vaccine. And uh, I think we're still going to have coronavirus waves coming through as we are slowing down the stay-at-home order, as we slow down quarantines or social distancing and I think we have to encourage and stress to the public, you have to keep the faith, do your part, and make sure if you are going to do anything, you make sure you're protecting yourself, you wear your mask, especially with what is going on in society right now. Uh Okay, John, we're we're we're, on, we're very close. So, where is it headed? What is co- what does COVID nineteen look like in six months, a year, two years? What is what does American society look like in those time frames? <sighs> I'm pushing you, but you're an Air Force officer, so now you can handle it. I believe there will be multiple waves. I am hoping that, according to that one report from Italy, that COVID nineteen seems to be attenuating. I believe that in order to overcome this disease social distancing, quarantine, and vaccine needs to be at the utmost personal and professionally, we have to stress those. Vaccines, you know, that's with uh, uh, pharmaceutical or what's called a uh, bioengineering companies. I think if they do their part and they really want to help the mass overcome this pandemic, I think it probably will be a year or two before normalcy actually sits in. Yeah. I'm, I'm watching eagerly uh, the Southern Hemisphere. Uh, Brazil has got a bunch of cases because um, they're going into winter, obviously, uh, in fall. They're currently in fall, heading for winter. And uh, what we know about droplet, uh, uh, respiratory droplet diseases, they tend to increase in, in prevalence in society during winter months. And so Correct. I think that, so somebody would say, well, they're six months behind us. I think they're six months ahead of us. And they I must, think yeah. because they've imp- they have either implemented or haven't implemented measures. And now what we see in those countries, and we study them for those countries that implemented social distancing, masks, hygiene, testing strategies of various types, we can study them to see what their winter's looking like so we know what our winter might look like. And likewise, those countries who have not been aggressive about that, we can watch them through this winter and see what would it look like if we're not doing that. That's what I think. And I, I think I'm okay with that. I think I'm, I'm on track with that. But I, I, I think the hardest thing for people is when they, when they can't just do their own thing, when it takes a mask to go into the grocery to be responsible, when it takes... When it takes, you can't go sit in church with your friends. I think it t- it really takes a toll on a lot of people. And I think that they just want it now. And, and having these studies pulled last week is a demonstration. You can hear the wind picking up because I have a big open mm-hmm. door. Um, I think you you realize things just take time. And it, it's, it's going to be a valuable lesson to all of us. I'm going to make a, a brief comment. You know, when I was growing up, I knew some people that survived the Depression. 
it totally changed their attitude about life. Like in the Midwest, you'd see all these little outbuildings. I never saw those in California. But when I got here, I saw these outbuildings and all these old farmers would have these outbuildings. And they'd be crammed with all sorts of stuff like used baling wire and stacks of lumber and you name it, you'd find these treasures filling these barns. And I got to ask him one, one time and, and he said, I was a child in the Depression and what we learned was we saved everything. And they're neat, the farms are neat, but there's buildings everywhere and they're full of stuff. And I think that mm -hmm. kind of a transformative change in the mentality of this generation is coming of just how you do things. And I don't think it'll ever be the same in terms of how we go to a restaurant or how we do things. I do think it'll be seasonal. I don't know, maybe that's a good way to end this before I ask you for any final thoughts is, John, does, does, does SARS-CoV-2 for the United States in the future look more seasonal, that in summer we kind of lax up on some things and we don't have to be as careful about masks because we have more ventilation, we're outside more, and then in winter we kind of lock it down, we go into mask season. Do you see that happening at all? No, I think we, I think we need to wear masks the entire time. I think especially during the winter when there are other respiratory viruses, we should be wearing it. And when we're in the summer, when everyone wants to be outside, everything you know, is so nice out, you know, I don't want to go socializing. However, you know, we're in front of people, we're not practicing social distancing. I think the masks still need to be encouraged. I think once we, once the, once the statistics show we're actually improving, that the numbers reduce, I think the masks will go away, but not soon enough. Well, John, so that, that raises a question. I got this will be a long segment, and I've got some ideas about how I'm going to produce this. I think I'm going to run this concurrently with the other uh, series I'm doing, just for people so this gets out quicker. But if I'm sitting with Grandma, and she is six feet away from me, out on the patio during, this, during the middle of the day, and there's a light breeze blowing, do I have to wear a mask to have a conversation with her? No. I didn't think so either. Uh, that doesn't make that makes complete sense to me. That there's a little breeze blowing, the concentration of viral load in the air column is minimal. We're far enough away. But if I'm in the house in the kitchen and grandma isn't someone I regularly associate with, um, I probably ought to be pretty careful about being too close to grandma without a mask on, right? Absolutely. Okay. Okay. Absolutely. Especially if you're a visitor, if, especially if you're coming from the office or, you know, you're an essential worker and that you know you're going to get exposed, I would wear a mask. It's funny, my brother, who's also an orthopedic surgeon, when he was operating, and he, he knew that he operated on a person that had COVID-19. When he went home to visit my parents, who are both in mid-70s, he wore an N95 mask the whole time. Yeah. That makes so especially it, it, with people that you do not know. There's hygiene standards. If they're a stranger, assume that they're not practicing good hygiene standards. Um, you know that's a big difference. If it's in a close group and you know that person's always wearing a mask in public, that person's got good hygiene, they're taking great precautions. Probably a safer bet to be around them. But if you don't know the person and they're coming over, you really need to assume you're walking through the densest shopping mall on Christmas during the peak of a COVID outbreak. Yeah. I think, I mean, and again, I, I welcome you to tell me where I'm wrong. But with that, John, I'm gonna ask you, what have we missed? We've talked a lot about different things. We've talked about pulmonology. We've talked about the mechanisms of SARS-CoV-2. We've talked about the future, hygiene. What, are, what for the person who's interested in this topic have we failed to address that you think is really important we should know about? 
I think, you know, there's that discussion in what about surfaces. I think. Oh, you, know, you, you saw that question. You did read my notes. <laughs> <laughs> what about surfaces, Dr. Bashara? I think, you know, the transmission of coronavirus to persons from surfaces contaminated with the viruses, I think they're not documented. I think the current evidence that it remains viable for hours to days. I think cleaning, being again, practicing good hygiene, practicing proper technique, especially with disinfection, should be encouraged, especially in our households, especially in colleges and schools. Mm. I encourage, look, not many people realize, but our janitors, our custodial staff, they're frontline responders as well. Many so of them older. Many of them in their 50s and 60s. Yes, because they know what it means to do hard work. And yeah. they're cleaning after us. And are we doing a good job disinfecting uh, our, my office or around us? Probably not, but their janitors, the custodial staff, the cleaning crew, you know, they have to be applauded as well. Yeah. So, so this is this raises that one more question. Again, we could talk about this for hours. And I think what I want to do, John, if you're cool with it, and we'll work it around the, the the baby and everything else. But we need to have a conversation in six months and just maybe a half an hour of just where are we at on this thing, especially as we go into winter. But absolutely. But John, so the thing that's always concerned me is what do I tell people about the mail? And the reason why I say that is, see, I'm a believer in physics, and I'm a believer in microbiology and knowing what UV radiation does to viruses and RNA and DNA. And I'm thinking, I can safely say, look, if you leave your mail out in the direct sunlight and you do that for, you know, a few, an hour, you're probably okay handling your mail, especially if you're just routinely washing your hands. But, I, you know, and there's a study out there that was done – and I, I don't, I, someone sent it to me and I've lost track of it, but it was a couple weeks ago I got it that said, look, we've, we've looked and the surface, surface viability of SARS-CoV-2, especially in sunlight, is pretty limited. I, I don't know if, you, if you're aware of that. I mean, how do you tell the average person how to handle their groceries, how to handle their mail when they get home to where it's not so cumbersome that they start making mistakes? I'll tell you this. This is what my wife makes me do. When I go out and do I like how you put that. This is what my wife makes me do. You are well on your way to a successful and long marriage. You just accept the fact your wife will make you do things. I like that. Absolutely. That's right. I wear gloves when I go out to groceries. I wear gloves when I go get the mail. What do you do with your mail when you get home? So I open the mail with the gloves on, and then once I take off the gloves, I wash my hands. Do you handle the mail inside the envelopes then? Yes, with gloves on. Really? Still? That aggressive? You know, especially with having a premature baby at home. Yeah. She takes, like, once I enter the house, I have to completely take off all what I wear and put it straight into the washing machine. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And straight to uh, the shower so I can take my COVID rinse off. So... I think, you know, practicing safe hygiene, you know, usually I get sick once a year, especially during the winter, especially with a respiratory virus. Knock on wood, I've been pretty well, pretty good off. It probably could be just because of my safe practice, my yeah. social distance. 
and me wearing a mask. Yeah. Well, there's a lot to think about. Um, you know, I, I try to put relevant papers, references on Facebook, and people ask me, and people know they can get a hold of me on Facebook if they have a question. Um, there is so much more to talk about with COVID-19, especially over time, because I know we're going to learn from this. And I, I, I still believe with great confidence that this is going to help us with long-term control and mitigation of other respiratory illness, other disease in general. I mean, for years, just so you know, I, I've carried MRSA in my nose. A lot of people do. A lot of people are naturally inoculated with methicillin-resistant staph aureus. I know that, and ever since I found that out as a resident when our infectious, infection disease nurses swabbed us and cultured our nasal pharynxes because we had an MRSA outbreak in our hospital, and it turned out that my MRSA was the strain that was not associated with the outbreak. I've always been a compulsive hand washer, but I've been meticulous about that because I never want what I'm carrying around just in my normal flora to be implicated in the morbidity of a patient. Absolutely. And so I think... I am to me it's become intuitive over 25 nearly 30 years of practice because I just say well shoot I carry MRSA and I don't ever want that person in the hospital to have the same MRSA I did because that means I gave it to him so I think it, it I've had the benefit of years of doing this and I think a lot of people are just trying to adjust to it and say I just don't understand this infectious control thing in day-to-day -day life but you do because you have a, a baby and you're a physician and and you've got uh, people you care about who have vulnerabilities it's going to take a while John we, we got to figure out really how to teach people to, th to understand their freedoms aren't being taken away from them. We're just trying to get everybody to take care of one another. It's a hard, hard, hard challenge. Totally agree. Well, John, anything else you want to say? No, thank you so much for having me. No, I appreciate you, John. And I hope maybe you'll agree in six months to do it again. Lovely. That's awesome. Bye. Okay, John, thank you. Uh, Take care. Yeah, you too, buddy. I'll see you. I'll see you in person probably in the in the near future. Yeah. Okay, everybody. That was Dr. John Bashardio of uh, of WVU Medicine, uh, a pulmonologist working in Charleston, West Virginia, a state that has been actually pretty good about how it's managed its 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 problems with SARS-CoV-2. But it, as you've learned, hopefully in this series, it is not a perfect process, and it takes a lot of people really thinking through it, and it just takes time. And so with that, I hope you get a lot of uh, value out of this. You'll see in the outro, of course, ways to get a hold of me. You know Medical Cinema, at Medical Cinema on Twitter, or TR Fredericks at Facebook. You can send those questions to me, and if you have questions for Dr. Bashar, send them to me, and I'll put them in the script, and in a few months, we'll talk again, and, and maybe you can be clear, clear on stuff. But with that, I wish you a wonderful day and, uh, and, and wear your mask, wash your hands, and be careful of how close you are to people uh, without being protected well. Uh, take care. Bye. Running tired and broken and scared, but I swear I'll never give up the fight. I see you broken and beat. Head pulled down over your eyes. Rotations is the weekly podcast of all things medicine and science and is part of the media and medicine family of medical storytelling. Opinions and comments expressed on Rotations do not reflect the official or unofficial positions of Ohio University, the Ohio University Heritage College of Osteopathic Medicine, or the Scripps College of Communication. The guests on Rotation are interviewed in an unopposed fashion so their ideas and opinions can be freely expressed. 
This episode of Rotations was produced by Todd Fredericks. <laughs> I say things like they're spelled I before E except after C. Let me try it again. I have to say Todd Fredericks like 20 more times. Dang it. I'm just going to say Fredericks. And I also keep adding not an S to rotations. I keep saying rotation. This episode of Rotations was produced by Todd Fredericks. Rotations is periodically co-hosted by a league of champions of all things medical and a few people we pull off the street. Rotations is copyrighted, and while we welcome citation, tweets, Facebook likes, and other endorsements via word of mouth and social media, we reserve the right to all content. You may use Rotations content under the provisions of Creative Commons, but cannot alter or edit the content in any manner without express permission of the content creators, and you must cite Rotations as the source of any content derived from the podcast. We welcome any comments, and you can contact us by emailing us at rotationspodcast at gmail.com, tweeting us at rotationspcast, or by visiting mediainmedicine.com slash rotation. Spend less time in your